You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 20th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. It was very provocative and Macron must have been aware of what he was saying and how it would be perceived. There are major issues with NATO, for example, with its relationships to the EU and some very structural issues that NATO has not really discussed in recent years. And maybe that's what Macron is hinting at. With NATO's summit in the UK looming, we ask how Emmanuel Macron's salty comments to The Economist have played with the rest of the alliance. My guests Florian Egli and Benno Zog will discuss that and the day's other news, including what Switzerland's president, Uli Maurer, might be hoping to get from a meeting with Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. And with countries turning down the event, have the Olympic rings lost their luster? Plus... London, New York, Tokyo and Paris are, in that order, the most comprehensively attractive cities in the world. So says the Global Power City Index 2019. What emerges is a fascinating picture of the strengths and weaknesses of the world's cities. We'll unpack the Global Power City Index's latest findings. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Benno Zog, researcher at the Centre for Security Studies at ETH Zurich, and Florian Egli, vice president of the foreign policy think tank Foraus. Both join me today from Monocle 24's bureau in Zurich. Now, we are a couple of weeks away from the next NATO summit being held here in the UK in early December. Among the attendees who may have reason to wonder how warmly he will be welcomed is French President Emmanuel Macron. His fellow leaders of NATO countries will still be wondering quite how to absorb the interview Macron sprang on The Economist recently, in which he accused the alliance of suffering brain death and expressed some views on EU enlargement and dealing with Russia, which bristled against conventional wisdom somewhat. Uh, Benno, first of all, what do we think Macron actually meant by brain death? It was very provocative and Macron must have been aware of what he was saying and how it would be be perceived. He tried to be a bit more precise and kind of paddle back just a a tiny bit at the recent conference in, in Paris on security where he said that he just wants to provoke a discussion essentially that it's important that things we hold dear need to be questioned and need to be reformed and so on but I do not think that this one quote um, of NATO being brain dead will be any softer um, as is. Obviously there are major issues with NATO for example with its relationships to the EU and some very structural issues that NATO has not really discussed in recent years, and maybe that's what Macron is hinting at, and in that he would be correct. There's, I think, three major challenges today um, for NATO. One is obviously Russia, and that there are certain NATO members who are um, more comfortable with Russia and others who are very much opposed to any kind of rapprochement. And the second one is Turkey in a fairly interventionist war in Syria and, and NATO members wonder whether they have their security guarantees in place and whether they need to be used to defend an aggressive Turkey at some point. And the third one is another T, Trump, obviously questioning all kinds of multilateral framework. So if Macron wants to trigger a debate about these kind of things, it's very productive. If he just wants to bash NATO and doesn't really offer an alternative, um, we may end up in more trouble than we already are. 
Florian, as Benno mentioned, Trump is clearly a factor in Macron's thinking. He's attempting to make the point that under previous presidents, a certain amount of complacency uh, has taken root in NATO about the US guarantee of, of Europe's security. But is he also thinking perhaps about the UK and how reliable an ally that might prove to be, not merely on the other side of Brexit, but quite possibly on the other side of Brexit and led by Jeremy Corbyn? Is he looking at a NATO to which the only actual reliable nuclear partner turns out to be France? I'm not sure if that's actually the reflections or if the reflection go 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 that far. You know, in a sense... I perceived Macron's statement as kind of a, a therapist in the room that, you know, it's a very broken relationship. I feel what NATO has been doing over the past years and everybody has sort of been, you know, like muddling through and now at least somebody steps up and clearly names a problem. So that's typically the therapist role. And and the second thing that, that, a, that a smart therapist does, which Macron has also done, is he doesn't say, you know, um, this is a go or no go, this is a stop and go, like we have to decide absolutely now. But he says this is going to be a very long um, discussion and he mentions the time horizon of 10 years. So if you take a time horizon of 10 years as your relevant decision for frame, then, you know, it becomes a bit less um, important whether Jeremy Corbyn wins an election or not. Or um, also, I mean, looking at at the other um, side of the Atlantic, of course, things change quite massively um, or could change quite massively next year, um, depending on whether um, Trump secures a second term or not. Now, if he's not to secure a second term, then I see a rather promising future for NATO. And I think um, it would be very premature to um, kind of have a fundamental debate on to be or not to be for NATO, um, because it's just a very uncertain situation at the moment, as as, as Benno said. And and I think the, the second T that Benno mentioned, that Trump is kind of the, the key sort of destabilizing factor behind all this. I think dealing with Russia, dealing with an ally, um, Turkey, that, that engages actively in Syria would all be easier if the Euro-US um, alliance um, were actually watertight. So I think a lot depends on, on the US elections. And I think, um, therefore, the reflection is, is kind of a very... Um, extends quite quite a bit into the future and not just um, to next year or the, or the UK elections. Uh, Benno, one of the ideas or solutions that President Macron was proposing within that 10-year uh, framework uh, that Florian mentioned there was the idea of some sort of constructive re-engagement with Russia. Uh, from where we are now, and given that a lot of things can happen in 10 years, including perhaps somebody other than Vladimir Putin being president of Russia... Is that still kind of a naive way to think? Is is Russia basically, should we think of Russia as NATO's internal antagonist or, or, or is, is there another way that the relationship might evolve? Well, this is obviously the tough one and nobody really knows an answer to that. And that includes people in this studio. Um <laughs> I wish we did. Russia is undoubtedly a major challenge and it wants to be this challenge. It kind of wants to be this nemesis of NATO because it has never been fond of NATO to begin with based on the Cold War experience, obviously, it wasn't when NATO was the Soviet Union's major adversary, but also based in the 90s when NATO kind of persisted and Russia never really found a place in some kind of European security architecture because these institutions of the Cold War were more or less perpetuated. And Russia now 
claiming that out of a position of strength, decided to be outside of this, um, to kind of face them in a way, to have its own Eurasian or Russian identity or civilization. Um, so this is kind of by default and obviously feeds into this nationalist rhetoric that we see out of the Kremlin. And to engage such a Russia is, that's the problem. First of all, very tricky. It's engaged in all kinds of conflicts where it doesn't want to settle whatsoever, doesn't want to compromise. But second, it's necessary nonetheless. European security will never be without some kind of involvement of Russia. And the Baltic states or Poland or Ukraine, obviously, will never feel secure if there's not some kind of very pragmatic arrangement with Russia. And in the past years, since the invasion and annexation of, of Crimea, we haven't really seen productive moves to make this happen but also because the Kremlin hasn't been willing to compromise. So any kind of re-engagement of Russia or easing of sanctions is, well, the way to go in a way, because those are diplomatic tools that have to be used to, to foster European security. At the same time, the Kremlin gives us a really hard time to move any way towards them because they're very much still involved in Ukraine, even though there's a bit of dynamics now with Ukraine's new president. A very little willingness to compromise on any of the fundamentals. And that's basically Russia saying we want a sphere of influence. We want to be a major power. We want to be distinct from everyone else. We don't just want to be a European country. And then as long as there's no willingness on that end, any engagement will be hard. And that may be under Putin just as much as under some kind of unknown successor. Uh, Benno, just before we move off the thoughts of President Macron, um, do we yet understand fully why he was so against uh, elevating North Macedonia and Albania to EU accession talks? Um, that's kind of hard to tell. I guess like accession overall is quite, if we ask the European populations in all kinds of countries, there will be a lot of scepticism towards accession of such countries that are still perceived as small, corrupt and so on, even though they've made progress in recent years on, for example, anti-corruption legislation, this may still not be solidified enough. And obviously European countries will ask just Similarly, when it comes to NATO accession as well, what's the added value to us if we add more countries to the club? Um, so I kind of see where Macau is coming from in a way, but at the same time, what he wants to, to make is a real point that there's no accession of, of new members, there's no major debate in Europe without Paris's consent, which is true, obviously, enlargement is... Uh, is a consensus decision, but at the same time, he kind of really wants to make a point of this independent French foreign policy that at the same time can have some kind of a leading role in Europe. And I think that's the kind of statement that Macron really wants to make. And it's not really about North Macedonia. So one could always, almost feel sorry for them that there's kind of an example set on their backs. Benno Zog and Florian Egli, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. Uh, here is Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. The social media giant Twitter has accused the UK's Conservative Party of misleading the public. It follows the rebranding of an official Tory party account, which was to make it look like a fact-checking service during a televised leadership debate. The account then reverted back to its original form after the contest. 
Polls have opened in a referendum which could see the creation of a new federal regional state in southern Ethiopia. It's widely expected that the plebiscite will pass, which will mean that the Sidama ethnic group will be able to take decisions over issues such as taxes, education and security. And California is taking its fight for the right to clean air directly to car manufacturers. Governor Gavin Newsom has announced that state agencies will halt their purchases of new vehicles from major automakers. For more on that story, head over to monocle.com and sign up to our daily email bulletin, The Monocle Minute. That's what's making news. I'm Ben Rylan. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ben Ozog and Florian Egli. Well, let's stick with the subject of European outreach to Vladimir Putin, as Swiss President Uli Maurer intends to attempt exactly that on a visit to Moscow this week. According to the Kremlin's press service, the pair will discuss key issues concerning the future of cooperation between Russia and Switzerland, as well as some pressing global problems, which all sounds like terrific fun. Uh, Florian, what is President Maurer hoping to accomplish here? In the sort of geopolitical um, framing of Western Europe, I never, I'm never quite sure whether Switzerland is in there or not. And we're kind of choosing um, which issue is worth being in there and which issue isn't and, and actually sort of getting along quite well with that strategy. What I'm most worried about um, concerning this visit, but perhaps not the visit in, its, in itself, but, but actually rather to whom we're extending as, you know, part of the Swiss um, um, foreign policy is, I'm wondering how strategic all of this is and whether the, the Swiss foreign ministry actually has a clear plan, you know, what the what is the aim and what is the potential gain of these um, of, of these endeavors? Because to give you an example, I mean, um, China has launched the Belt and Road Initiative quite recently and Switzerland was one of the very first Western countries to endorse it and kind of did so with some economic pretext that were extremely unclear whether Swiss companies are actually going to benefit from this, which is the same case in Russia, I would argue. And but lent to the Chinese really um, a kind of very important stamp that this is serious, that this is trustworthy, that neutral and Western Switzerland is actually approving of this. And, and so there is, there is much more symbolism in these acts, I would say, than Switzerland sometime comprehends. And, and in some sense, I fear that this is a bit um, a similar route that we're taking here um, in, in President Maurer deciding to talk um, to, to Russian President Putin, that this, this visit will, or I assume, be used um, from a Russian side as quite a symbolic act and, and quite a meaningful act. Whereas for from a Swiss perspective, it's kind of depicted as, yes, you know, there was a long-standing invitation, it was lying around, now we're taking up on it, we're going there we can, with an economic um, delegation and we're trying to open markets for Swiss companies and if we get a chance, we're going to talk about some human rights issues as well, right? And and I'm just I'm just... This kind of spasm between those two viewpoints is kind of worrying for me, and I'm wondering whether there is actually enough strategic considerations in this in these moves. Uh, Benno, this is not the first controversial visit that President Maurer has undertaken. He's also been to consult with Saudi Arabia, but. Is, is it a difficult thing for a Swiss president to do to establish themselves as a meaningful foreign policy pr- presence? They don't get very long in the job. Uh, they do not, indeed. There's like a rotating presidency um, of one year. Um, after one year, it switches. So it's more of a, 
of an added title to one of our seven federal councillors, that former government. So this president thing is mostly towards the, the outside, but it doesn't represent like any dominant position in Switzerland. So it does change indeed like who visits as president these kinds of countries. Um, and that makes any kind of strategy through these visits quite, quite tricky, but still symbolism is there. As Florian said, this is a president visiting another president, and particularly in these delegate days. And as you hinted at, Andrew, um, the previous visit of Wali Maura to Saudi Arabia caused some controversy as well, as well as another visit early this year uh, in the White House um, with a fairly embarrassing interview of President Maurer on CNN, for example. So he doesn't really have a good track record of these kind of visits. At the same time, in his defense, I think uh, also what I alluded at earlier, it is important to talk to major powers also to Russia, because that's the only way, the only kind of engagement that we have, not talking to each other, is not possible. And Switzerland is maybe in a bit of a delicate position there because it represents Russia and Georgia and Georgia and Russia because of their bilateral dispute. So Switzerland is by this very nature an intermediary in a way and can have more direct channels of engagement and of dialogue. But this has has to be utilised, of course. So we can't just talk about business opportunities for Swiss banks. We also have to talk about human rights issues, political issues, and Ukraine in particular. And one will have to see whether these topics are really addressed um, adequately and whether or not economics is the first and second and third priority. Okay, well... Now here here could be an interesting option, right? So if, if the clear strategy of this visit would be to kind of take a mediating role as Switzerland um, is and has quite successfully, I would argue, been doing um, uh, between Georgia and Russia, you know, something along these lines might be, might be necessary uh, in the future in the Ukraine um, um, conflict. And, and certainly all Western European countries do not qualify for this. And that could be an interesting sort of strategic line of thought. But I'm just, I'm just struggling to see this. Well, finally on today's news panel, we will have a quick look at the increasing unattractiveness of the Olympics, a prize for which cities used to compete, now increasingly seen as a plague they wish to flee. The IOC's latest idea for making the whole thing seem less of a hassle for its hosts is a deal with Airbnb to provide accommodation for Olympic staff and tourists. Although given that some cities want Airbnb even less than they do the Olympics, this may not have been thought all the way through. Um, Benno, let's frame this in terms of of Switzerland, which hasn't hosted a winter game since San Moritz in 1948. Um, I know Sion has bid for a few more recently than that, but does anybody in Switzerland really miss hosting the Olympics? I think with confidence, I can say that not really, to be honest, <laughs> given these latest, these latest games that we've seen. And actually, there's a record of that. I'm not just claiming it. Um, there were popular votes on, for example, whether some money should have been granted to four such bids or four first infrastructure projects in several of our cantons. And usually they don't end up well. The population says, no, we don't really want this. This is too much attention. This is too cumbersome. Too many white elephants. Um there's no really added added value. Plus, obviously, people already know Switzerland. People already know us for a ski <laughs> resort. So it's rather the kind of obscure places that may need advertising. But let's face it, mostly it's authoritarian countries bidding for it. And I think the, the 2022 Winter Olympics bid that went to Beijing was quite telling. Um, the, other, the only other real contender was Almaty, Kazakhstan, 
which does have mountains nearby. It's gorgeous. I was there this summer, but they don't really have the facility, but an authoritarian government that is willing to pour all kinds of hydrocarbon resources and money from that into such games. To, to Swiss people, like probably Florian and I here in the studio, this is not really attractive. Uh, and Florian, do you think there's something to that that more and more cities have now just seen through the Olympics and realised that it's an enormous build-up and an immense expense and such benefits as you may accrue tend to be fleeting? Yeah, I completely agree with Benno. I think if you if you were to let people vote on whether they host the Olympics or not, I, I struggle to see many places that will host the Olympics. I indeed struggle to see the future of the Olympics. Um, so, so I think I'm afraid it is really quite questionable what the real benefit of the Olympics are. And in this extreme example, I mean, Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, um, who hosts the 2024 um, Olympics um, is already, you know, waging a war. I would almost say against Airbnb. So this is kind of just another another um, thing into into a wrong direction. And to be honest, you know, one of the very few advantages of Olympics games may be if you're really facing, you know, austerity where governments are not willing to spend, and you have very sensible infrastructure pr uh, projects that cannot get realized unless in the framework of the Olympic Games. Um, as, for example, East London has done to some extent successfully, I think that might be one of the one of the pluses. But but I really struggle to see many advantages. Florian Egli and Benno Zog, thank you both. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about a new index determining the power of cities. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, the Global Power City Index reveals its big hitters. London, New York, Tokyo and Paris are in that order the most comprehensively attractive cities in the world. So says the Global Power City Index 2019, a detailed report compiled by the Mori Memorial Foundation's Institute for Urban Strategies, a Tokyo-based think tank. The annual index has been ranking more than 40 cities since 2008, looking at 70 indicators covering everything from business to the environment. This year, four new cities were added, including Melbourne and Dublin, and new categories scrutinized, among them tourist attractions, nightlife options and public transportation use. The report is overseen by a committee of urbanism professors from around the world and chaired by Heizo Takenaka, a Japanese economist and retired politician. What emerges is a fascinating picture of the strengths and weaknesses of the world's cities. Tokyo is miles ahead when it comes to restaurants, but could improve workplace flexibility. Seoul is great for R&D, but poor on livability. New York scored highly on economic indicators, but fell short on skilled workers as talent shifts to other cities and countries. London has the potential to stall with Brexit uncertainty, while Paris is on the up after winning the 2024 Olympics. European cities such as Zurich and Stockholm lead the way on environmental issues, while Asian cities overall fared less well on green matters. At yesterday's launch press conference, Takenaka said it was up to the national government to tackle issues such as lowering corporate tax to boost the capital's economy. 
China too is key as the impact of its somewhat sluggish economy and ongoing trade war with the US is being felt in cities the world over. In other words, it'll take more than municipalities to shore up city strengths and address their weaknesses. That was Monocle's view on the Global Power City Index, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's house view was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolin Goffan, Giacomo Harper and Nick Toomey. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Jack Dewars. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. The house view returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>